Welcome to the Bioinformatics CRO podcast. I'm Grant Belgard, and joining us today is Mark DePristo. Mark, can you introduce yourself, please? Delighted to be here, Grant. Thank you for the invitation. I'm Mark DePristo. I'm the CEO of Big Hat Biosciences, a San Francisco-based AI for a drug discovery startup. My uh, background in that space has is really been at the intersection between bio and, and tech for about 20 years. I was a undergrad in computer science and math, and I, I won a Marshall Fellowship that sent me to England, and I got a PhD in biochemistry. And I really got the bio bug after that. I actually went to Harvard and was an experimentalist for three years, so I learned how to pipette, although pretty poorly. Saw the full stack of that, and from there I went and was at the Broad Institute, and most recently at Google, applying AI to bio in, in the broadest way possible. Fantastic. So can you tell us more about what you're doing at Big Hat? You know, Big Hat Biosciences is really focused on radically improving the design of antibody therapeutics. And we're doing that to enable a next generation of even more sophisticated therapeutic molecules, um, which I'm sure we'll get into in more detail. And how we're doing that is really to leverage recent advances in AI and machine learning, as well as synthetic biology techniques to build a new type of wet lab that's very high cycle time, so it can do a lot of work quickly. And it's coupled at every part to AI and machine learning technologies to guide that. So Big Hat's really a closed loop uh, antibody engineering shop. And we drive that technology to, to basically do data-driven or rational antibody design. And can you talk a bit more about what the ideal Big Hat antibodies would be able to do? Yes. Yeah, so to really answer that question, I think we have to sort of talk a little bit about the history of, of antibodies. So, you know, for the first wave of antibody therapeutics, were all based on monoclonal antibody technologies. And what that means is, you know, you're basically repurposing an immune system. It could be mice, it could be human, to give you an antibody that the body can produce. It's, an, it's a natural product of a body. And those molecules, you know, can bind to all sorts of different things. You can make them bind to surface receptors. And this is really the origin of, of the top drugs today that are biologics, that are all antibodies. The challenge with monoclonal antibodies is not that there's something fundamentally wrong with them. They're very good molecules. It's just that they're very limited in what they can do. They're, they're the natural product of the, of the immune system. So they they intrinsically do all the things that the immune system wants them to do, right? They interact with the immune system. They activate inflammation pathways. They have a very specific you know, way of binding and interacting with targets. And they're really, really big. I mean, these are massive molecules. And all of those issues limit what you can do with them. And so after about 20 years in monoclonal antibodies, there was this huge explosion of so-called next generation formats. And these are antibodies that are engineered to not be natural products. They're now you know, more designed around the needs of therapeutics. So there's all sorts of things like molecular glues that use parts of antibodies to stick things together. You could stick molecules together. You could stick cells to molecules. You could stick cells to cells with these bridges. You know, We want to make small antibodies. We want to make antibodies that are environment sensitive, so change their behavior in pH, change their behavior in the, in the presence of other molecules. 
of course, those don't come out of human immune systems, don't, don't come out of mice. You know, we own the engineering of that. And, and, and I think what Big Hat's really founded on the problem that gives rise to Big Hat, the commercial entity, is designing these you know, so-called Frankenstein antibodies is just incredibly difficult. And it's difficult along a whole bunch of dimensions that we've never been particularly good at. It's really challenging to do rational drug design. You know, no matter whether you're working on biologics or small molecules, it's just very difficult. Two, um, you have this enormous space of, of possible antibodies, right? You have this sort of combinatorial search problem on which amino acids to put in, in the antibodies that, that cause the search space to get really big and it can be very hard to find good molecules. And finally, you know, because most monoclonal antibodies are coming out of organisms, human, mice, et cetera, they're pretty good molecules. Like they have to be tolerable in the body. Once you start to engineer those molecules and make Frankenstein versions of them, they don't really have to function particularly well. They can be deeply unstable. They can aggregate. They can do all sorts of things you don't want them to do. And removing those things, stabilizing the molecules, removing its aggregation propensity, this is really hard to do rationally. And so we have these amazingly exciting next generation antibodies, things that are transforming cancer therapies, immune therapies, you know, really even infectious disease, but we have an unbelievably difficult time creating them because the processes we built for natural product discovery that worked great for monoclonal antibodies don't really help you on that engineered molecule because they're not coming out of organisms. And so the problem is fundamentally different. And that challenge is sort of what Big Hat is focused on addressing. And then the, you know, the modern technologies we use to address this is, is sort of why we're able to do this now. That's really what's changed about the world. It's not that people didn't want to do this 20 years ago. They were all very excited. It's just 20 years ago when I was doing this work, you know, making a couple of mutations to an antibody, it would be weeks of work, right? And today, this is something that Big Hat does routinely. That's incredible. So what kind of balance do you have on your team between ML people, structural biologists? Is it usually people came up with UHD programs where they did uh, uh, machine learning for structural biology? Do you get people who trained up through very different fields and then they apply that to the other field at Big Hat? That's a great question. So, and it, it has to do a lot with sort of what is the structure of the teams and the organization at Big Hat? You know, when we were really forming Big Hat, there was this open question of like, how do we, how should we organize the team? Should we have a computational biology organization on one side and an experimental biology org on the other? And that's what you typically see. I mean, if you look at most companies, you'll see that kind of computational versus experimental division, often very high from the very start of the org structure. We really were nervous about going down that route. We really saw the value of Big Hat in part through the integration of the wet lab and dry lab tech. And we really didn't want people to be thinking about it being somebody else's problem to do data analysis or somebody else's problem to produce high quality experimental work. And so we actually have totally not gone down that route. And we've really structured Big Hat more around the projects we're working on. So in a matrix org, we're sort of, we've pivoted the matrix to the other dimension and organized the company that way. And what that means is that it allows us to produce teams that are what you could imagine skill complete. Like all the things that the team needs to be able to do has at least some representative expertise on it. And it's 
manifest in you know three or four people that have eight or nine skills that are required. And so everyone is multifunctional, but the team isn't complete unless you have all the people. It means that we mostly hire people for two attributes. They have like some number of skills that they can bring to that team and they work really well with the other people on that team. It's hard to be, you know, the Atlas and push up all the problems at Big Hat on your own. It's just not going to work because nobody has the expertise across all the tech that we work on. We work on everything from like DNA synthesis to, you know, active learning technologies on the cloud. It's just, that's not reasonable to ask for. So we compose Big Hat out of a bunch of puzzle pieces that all fit together to give a picture of what we need to do. So I noticed on your website, you talk about being a team-oriented, inclusive, remote-friendly, and family-centric culture. Were you remote-friendly from the beginning? Uh, was that accelerated by, by COVID, or was that, is that by design? Uh, it was both by design and by necessity. Actually, we were remote from our first hire. Uh, our first hire is a guy named Eddie Abrams, uh, who's the VP of engineering, who I worked with at, at Synaptics before Google. Um, Eddie's a fabulous guy and Eddie lives in Arizona. So the choice was simply, you know, do we want Eddie to join us and be remote in Arizona at the start or do we not want to do that? And we made the right choice. We you know, took Eddie on. It's been a fabulous journey with him as employee number one. But that happened a few months before COVID started. So we built Big Hat from the ground up to make sure that our first employee would have be productive in a, in a remote-oriented culture. And so that's turned out, you know, obviously we didn't anticipate how important that decision would have been, but it proved great. And now Big Hat is highly distributed all over the country. In fact, I don't believe, I think the, the center of mass of Big Hat is not even close to San Francisco at this point most of the company is actually stationed on the East Coast. That, that's the remote answer. So the remote answer is de definitely very remote friendly. I mean, we're just fundamentally remote by, by definition. I hardly, I was actually at Big Hat yesterday for the first time in months. So it was really, it was great to see everyone again and see what the lab looks like now. But we do that because, well, you want to eat your own dog food. So I try to stay remote to ensure that, that the company is remote friendly. Really inclusive is just this, this vision that two things, we want to be flexible. You know, not everyone wants to work the same hours and the same time zone in the same way as everybody else. And in particular, you know, it's, it's clear that the people who need more flexible hours are often people who have more complicated lives through any number of, of things. I mean, I have three young kids and this introduces so much logistical complexity in my life. You know, I need to work in an environment that's, that's flexible. And I have a lot of benefits to being, being able to do that. So Big Hat structured itself around this idea of like people should work when they need to work. We're going to be remote across many time zones. Like we can't say the business hours are nine to five Pacific time and demand everyone be there. So we really are a more results oriented place. You know, we try to make sure that it's very clear what everyone's working on. We all work on it together. It's very collaborative. And we care not about face time or how many hours, but really are you contributing to the mission and, and, the, and the goals of Big Hat? And that 
focus on results and flexibility means that we're able to recruit lots of people in a much more inclusive way than if you're physically located in one place with very specific timelines and, and, and when you should work. So, And family-centric is just, it's simple that basically Big Hat forces working hours on people. So what we mean by that is we don't want to getting emails at midnight. Like if people are sending emails on the weekend, this is strongly discouraged. You know, the expectation is that everyone is working, you know, a 40 hour week and they're not killing themselves to put in an 80 hour week because we don't want you to do that. We don't want people to burn out. We want to make sure that people who have other obligations in their lives can fulfill those obligations without worrying that Big Hat is somehow unhappy with them. And what it really forces, honestly, is, is two things. One is it forces real prioritization, right? Like we're not going to work Thursday night just because, you know, we want to do a little bit extra work that week, right? Like we're, unless that's critically important, like, you know, we have a deadline on that Friday, in which case we do do this, but that can't be your MO because Ultimately, Big Hat is really a collection of people. And that's why we're successful, is that we're able to have really good people who like to work and are very productive in the environment we've created. And in some sense, the worst possible outcome for Big Hat would be to set up a culture where we scour the earth to find all the right people to work with us and then bring them into an environment that's such a pressure cooker that they burn out almost instantly and then they're not productive. And that's a huge failure mode of tons of startups. And it's one of the biggest questions we get. I mean, people will come and say, you guys are such an early startup. Like, you know, you guys, are you expecting me to be here at 9 p.m. every day? And it's really a pleasure to be able to tell people that, no, no, that, that's not at all what the culture is like. You know, I stop working at 530. Like, that's it. I can't. I mean, my kids are home. Dinner is, is happening. Like, you know, I, I'm going to go do that. So that's forces real prioritization, real focus on the company. And actually, it turns out to be the right answer for the company as well. You want to be a focused company that only does the critical stuff. So drawing an arbitrary line in the sand that says 40 hours is okay and 40 hours beyond 40 hours is not okay, actually turns out to be an excellent prioritization mechanism. And everyone works on the things that are super, super important because you've got a fixed amount of time to work on it. So I saw a tweet the other day a paradoxical thing about people who consistently choose the most high leverage activity is their efforts have a rough-edged, half-assed quality because polishing things to perfection is a low leverage activity. That's interesting. Who said that? Diego Forte. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. I like it. Wondering if you know, maybe we could go go back to the beginning to understand how how you got here. Let's go all the way back. Childhood. I mean, what what got you interested in science? Were you interested in science as a child? Was that was that a later later interest? Going way back, you know, I was not a very academic kid at all. I was definitely the problem kid all the way up until about high school. It wasn't really until eighth grade, in fact, when I really got engaged in a- academics at all, and that was because I managed to get placed out of my remedial mathematics by taking some the pre-algebra aptitude test that Iowa gives out to everyone every year to see if you should be in the algebra class in eighth grade. It turned out I should have been in that class, which was really the start of like, hey, maybe I can do math and maybe I can do this other stuff. But yeah, I grew up in Iowa, a small town of 
50,000 people, roughly half students and half full-time residents. It was a great place. You know, it was super interesting to grow up in, in the Midwest. I mean, it would have been easier had the internet been there at the time I grew up, which sort of came in right at the moment I left. Uh, but it was a pretty idyllic childhood. It was very peaceful. It was very easy. You know, there was no crime, no, nothing to be concerned about. I could just wander around the town, even from a very early age. But I never really was academic at all. It wasn't until high school when I really got interested in some things. But honestly, even at that point, I mean, I went into Northwestern University as a declared English history double major because those were the best teachers I ever had by far in high school were the on the English and history side. I mean, I loved literature. I loved history. I used to love art history of all things. So I, uh, when I went to Europe at one point, like I just traveled around to all the museums. Um, and honestly, it wasn't until I got to Northwestern that I even saw anything that was sort of interesting on the science side. It was always presented in the most dry, imaginable manner. You know, you'd read these physics books and you'd be memorizing, you know, the equations as though the equations and your ability to solve those equations was the thing that was interesting scientifically. It wasn't, it's only now, like I'm reading the Feynman lectures for fun over the you know, last few weeks and it's so enjoyable to, to approach the science from this perspective of, of understanding as opposed to like manipulating equations. That was really, you know, my big journey when I was at Northwestern was the transformation from an English history double major into a computer science math double major when I left. And I kind of went, you know, from English and history, and I got into some cognitive science, which of course I never saw in high school. So I don't know, maybe now, maybe now there's cognitive science in high school. I actually don't know what the curriculum looks like these days, but I've never seen anything like this. This was amazing, this class about how people behave and how to understand the brain. And from there, it was, you know, I was just sucked into the computer science classes and the math classes. And uh, yeah, I came out really being a tech person. Uh, but not a scientist yet. I mean, I was really math, computer science. This is really engineering still. Um, but I had the good fortune to win a Marshall scholarship. You know, this, has been, this was really a transformative experience for me. One, it was, um, it was amazingly empowering. I mean, you, you know, they give out to 40 people in the United States every year. So, if it, you know, really that made you feel like, okay, I, I've really accomplished something. And I, I, I am on a trajectory where I can contribute. And it sent me to England with kind of a blank check. They really didn't care what I did at all. Um, and I tried to be an undergrad again at Cambridge University. I was originally a natural sciences undergrad, and, and that was clearly not for me. And I spent a couple of weeks just doing nothing like at Cambridge, trying to figure out what I was going to do with myself. And I read an article by a professor at UCSF named Ken Dill substantially changed my view on, on, on what I should do, where he was talking about problem protein folding and, and, and the complexity of proteins and computation and how this was all, you know, this was 19, this was 2001. And I was like, I should, I should do this. Like, this is, this is an area like uh, that seems exciting. Like, why don't I go talk to the biochemists here at Cambridge? It seems to be a pretty good place. So I, I literally walked into my future PhD advisor's office. It was a guy named Sir Tom Blundell, who's the chair of biochemistry at Cambridge. I said, I have my own money. Do you want somebody to hang out in your lab? I don't know anything. And he said, that's fine. You should talk to this guy named Paul DeBacher, who's a great friend of mine now. And I, it's funny, we've been bouncing in the same field for, for many, many years. And he was nice enough to let me in the lab. And I, I 
suddenly was a biochemistry PhD student and I had a lot to learn and I spent a lot of time reading a lot of books about science. I mean, I, I really had almost no idea about any of it. So it was incredibly exciting to, to learn. And after three and a half years of doing that, you know, I popped out with a PhD in biochemistry and mostly focused around methods for solving crystal structures. So, I mean, it makes sense. I had this technical skill. I could, I could help with the hard technical problem of in, interpreting all these spots that you get from spraying crystals of proteins, which was, you know, my cup of tea. But after that, you know, it was, it, I really, I mean, I had really gotten the bio bug, to be totally frank. And I had this realization that if I wanted to be a serious life sciences researcher, like I had to go and do experiments. So I signed on to do to a, to a lab to do experiments at Harvard. So I joined Dan Hartle's lab uh, joint originally with a guy named Shamil Sanyanev, but ultimately uh, was more split between Jim Collins' group and uh, Dan Hartle's group. And in Dan's group, I, I, I became a, an actual biochemist. Like I actually purified proteins and made mutants of proteins. And we published a great paper with uh, actually hardly anybody's on this paper. There's only four of us on it. One of them, one of the guys is still an incredibly good friend of mine. He lives literally down the road from me here in, in, in California named Nigel Delaney and, and another guy whose name I'm just blanking on, Dan Weinreich. And I and Dan Hartle wrote a paper where we made 32 mutants of beta-lactamase. So we created these, you know, plasma. We went in and made two to the five mutations of all combinations of, of five mutations that improve antibiotic resistance of this bacteria. And we just asked this very simple question, like how resistant is each possible trajectory from no mutations to all five? And that was a major science paper in 2006 because it was so hard to make mutations. It was so hard to do that experiment. I mean, it took us a year or more to just make 32 mutants and measure their MICs. But it was just transformative because you had new data. Like you, you could understand. It wasn't analyzing the data in somebody else's database. Like you could make the data and, and understand what was happening. And that was totally amazing. I mean, it was great to be in that environment and to, and to work on things like that. But by that point, I was, I was really convinced that I didn't want to be an academic. You know, I think academia is a great place for, for some people. And I, and I have to say, I'm, I continue to be disappointed by the narrative you see in the academic community as though the pinnacle of success is to become a professor, like the person who's educating you or mentoring you through the process. And like, you really don't want that. I was pretty happy to, to leave and joined a, a consulting firm called LEK Consulting to learn about business. So I spent you know, many, many months really trying to understand suddenly the business side of biotech. You know, people like, how much should we buy this company for? I don't know. Like, like, how do you value somebody's pipeline? Like, how do, you know, they got one asset in phase two. Like, what's how much money is a company worth that has this asset that can't even sell it? So it was super fascinating. It was a great place to work because all these questions, you know, ultimately I spend a lot of my time today thinking about those questions. But I didn't actually remain too long because I got pulled into the Broad Institute, uh, which was at that point a very small place. Uh, my friend who I had actually walked into the room with on the first day at biochemistry in Cambridge was at the Broad Institute. He had moved to Boston a year before me and was basically saying, hey, these sequencers from a company called Selexa slash Illumina, 
have just arrived here and uh, we have no idea what to do with them. Like they're, you know, we've got this project called Thousand Genomes that we're trying to start up and like barely understanding what's happening here. And there's way too much data and it's just, it's just chaotic. And do you want to come help? And that was really, I think, the start of my, what I would think of as my serious professional career. You know, the Broad was the first place that ever gave me the opportunity to manage a team, to think about a product that isn't a paper. You know, I had grown up in the sciences, you know, so the end result of everything was, you know, the write-up, the paper, maybe gave a talk, but that was it. Like, suddenly I, I was at a genomics institute. Like, I mean, I could publish papers, but there was also, like, we just had to sequence organisms and, like, make software that we could use to do this. Um, and so I really built out a, a team there that, the team that created the GATK, which is called the Genome Analysis Toolkit, which is a, now a, a pretty widely used piece of software in genomics. And I grew that team. It was, you know, originally a, a very small, you know, maybe one or two people and it grew up. At the end, when I left, it was about 20, but it became, I mean, it's huge now. I think there's a hundred people on, on that team owning kind of all of analytics at, at the Broad. And I would say, you know, that was just a fabulous experience. You know, I got to build software that was high scale. I mean, genome, genome sequencing produces a lot of data. So that was fascinating. You know, it was super hard statistically. You know, I had, you know, I learned everything about stats and machine learning, really not from all the theoretical stuff that I'd done before, but there's nothing like banging your head over and over into the, the error modes that are of, of a next-gen sequencer to make you really appreciate all the different ways that you can build statistical models and all sorts of machine learning things, because it's really hard. This is, in some sense, the most nightmarish environment for all of this stuff. You have systematic errors and all sorts of complex structure to them, and and that's hard. But but at the same time, you 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 can now sequence a genome of an organism at low cost, so it's totally worth every hour you could put into solving that problem. And I spent five years thinking about that problem at the Broad. And it was great. It was so satisfying to create the GATK. And, but after five years there, you know, I, again, it was, it was clear that I didn't want to become a professor. That was sort of the, the only out, you know, that I had at the Broad. You know, I, was, I was super senior by that point. I, didn't, I, didn't, I just didn't want to do that. You know, I didn't want to write grants and papers for the rest of my life. I mean, I, write, I found releasing GATK software updates like a thousand times more satisfying than writing a nature paper. I had to figure out what to do next. And I, I knew I wanted to go back to business. You know, I love being on the business side at LEK. And, but I knew that I didn't want to be an ecom consultant again. I mean, I, I like building stuff now. And so I joined a guy named Stan Lapidus at his startup called Synaptics, which was you know, a little bit outside of Boston in a place called Lexington. And, and he was running an amazing startup. I mean. They were looking for biomarkers of autism in the blood. And so I got to join this company and for two years ran a multi-omics trial trying to look for any possible way of diagnosing earlier risk for autism. And it was a great experience. I mean, I, I did every kind of imaginable blood-based sample you could find. You know, unfortunately, there is signal in the blood. I mean, we know that it's in the DNA, it's in the, you know, in the small molecules. Um, but there's not enough to be kind of clinically useful. So at the end of Synaptics, which was really, I have to say, you know, fabulous, despite the negative outcome, it was among the most important experiences I've had. It, 
Um, one of the guys who was on the board there uh, was uh, Andy Conrad, who was starting this Google Life Sciences thing inside of Google X and asked if I wanted to come there. So we packed up everything, moved out to San Francisco, and we're suddenly at Google X, and then that became Verily. And I ultimately moved to Google Brain. So I was in Google Brain for from 2015 to 2019. So really at the heart of the AI revolution inside of Google. It's you know shocking place to find myself, but it was totally an amazing experience. That's my story in a nutshell. Like <laughs> I could dive into any one of the pieces in any more detail that, that you'd like to hear about. Yes, I'm just wondering for, for the last hop from Google to Big Hat, uh, what prompted you to start your own company? Uh, I think there were two major drivers there. One was I loved being at Synaptics. This was amazing. All my colleagues were amazing. These were great people. And we, you know, we had a small company. It was only like 20 people. And we did amazing things. We had a whole giant clinical trial, created these amazing machine learning systems in the cloud to analyze tons of data. We got it was just fabulous. And, and it really convinced me that there's a lot of things that you could do with 20 people. And you can move the needle on really important problems. And I've always liked the commercial side of things. When I was young, I did all sorts of commercial stuff. Like really young, I loved mowing lawns. In some sense, the worst investment I ever made in my life was that I was in really into Magic the Gathering cards way before they were popular. So I had everything. I had hundreds of these cards. They're all worth thousands and thousands of dollars. Like I had, you know, given that I was like a baseball card collector, it's kind of embarrassing that I didn't see that. <clears throat> but I loved it. I mean, I went to this, you know, I was a high school student. I would go to the local Iowa State University and trade Magic the Gathering cards all weekend. I actually never really liked playing. All I really liked to do was trade. So I would find out who had what cards and liked what cards, and I would just arbitrage card value all day long to collect more and more of the stuff. So that was really, I think, the start of my real interest in, in commerce, the sort of knowing what other people wanted and who had what you could, you could like really collect up some amazing stuff. So I always had that bug and I saw how much you could do in a startup with Stan. And it was great being in Google, but Google's big. I mean, that's just the truth of it. It, it, it was it was a startup. It was a but it you know it's a hundred thousand person company now, and so no matter how happy I was in Google, I mean the co my colleagues were amazing. We had unbelievable support. It still was too big for me. It's hard. I don't like spending all day sort of talking to all the different people, trying to convince them about what we're doing. And that you know you got to like that if you're in a big company, because. You know, you got all your peers and all the people up in the org above you that you're going to want to talk to you about what you're doing. And that I just found too, too much overhead. You know, I, especially in Google, because, you know, Google, at some point you're talking to people who don't even know about life science. You're, you're sort of back saying, hey, look, life science is important. You can end up in that situation. So, you know, that's hard. If you really want to stay focused on moving the needle on life sciences stuff to sort of bottom out into conversations about why you know, life science is even important. It can be a little demoralizing, but it was a great place despite that. And, and ultimately, I think what really convinced me that I had to leave was when I was at Google, I had the opportunity to apply machine learning at an arbitrary scale to any public data set I wanted. So we pulled in everything. 
I mean, all I did all day long when I was at Google was think about how I could hit some life sciences problem with the deep learning hammer. And it was really like, can I transform this into some kind of data problem? And can I bring, you know, ImageNet or transformers or whatever kind of system we have in place to solve it? And so we did that all day, every day for years. And what was really clear toward the end of that was that we made the most progress when you could compare to some kind of reality or experiment that was much more sophisticated than the, the raw data for your models. And that's why Deep Variant, which was you know, the flagship effort of the team, which is interpreting genome sequencing data in some sense did so well because you could reference these gold standard data sets to generate tons of training data points. But as soon as you left that, you didn't know what truth was in almost all of biology. So it was, it was very hard to train models. So you would make some progress, but you would just forever be frustrated by the inability to have the right data to validate your models. And, and I don't mean trivial, like, oh, like, let's split the data. Like, that's not what I meant. I mean, everybody does that. That's table stakes of being able to do test train splits. It's more like, how do I know my model generalizes if I'm going to use it, you know, in the future? And the truth of the matter is there's no amount of cross-validation that's going to make you convinced that, like, the data you're going to collect today is going to be similar to the data you already collected. And so Big Hat was simply a product that I wanted to do something next where the lab was integrated from the start. It wasn't bolted on to the AI systems after the fact. And that was fundamentally never going to happen at Google, right? Like Google was in, in silico first place. From a life sciences perspective, you know, doing experiments was incredibly difficult for many, many reasons. But at the end of the day, like I wanted to have experiments integrated in to all the stuff. And so that observation that there was so much that could be done if you just had an integrated lab with the AI was why I left. And I spent, you know, months and months once I left saying, okay, look, all these areas, like where would you get the biggest bang for your buck if you could integrate a lab? And we want a lab that doesn't look like everybody else's lab. I don't want a high throughput lab. I want a high cycle time lab. I want my lab to be measured in like Hertz, right? Not, not number of data points. Like I, I want a totally different scale. And so that really led toward Big Hat. And of course, I met my co-founders at both Synaptics and then really at, at, at Google. And so we all sort of had a similar itch. It was, hey, we need, we need better experiments. You know, experiments designed for the needs of the AIs. That's fantastic. So other than antibody engineering, uh, what else do you think will be the, the most transformative applications of machine learning and biology in the coming few years? I think there's four big areas that you, I, I would expect to see major advances in. One is the space that Big Hat's in, which we broadly think of as molecular engineering. Most of the technologies we have for creating molecules, small molecules, big molecules, material science, all this stuff, they're like, they're screening technologies, right? Like I can generate diversity from some natural thing. I you know, grab fungi from the forest of the Amazon and I screen it for antimicrobial properties. Like, and that story is everywhere, right? Like I do that for material science. I do that for, you know, biologic molecules. And nobody really likes that. You know, it's just totally disempowering because we want to engineer like we do cars, not 
screen for random molecules that we don't fully understand. And so the AI tech is, is key. To, to, to break through that transition from screening to rational design, you need technologies that look like the things that Big Hat's heavily in, you know, predicting the properties of molecules, right? So given a molecule, what do you think it's going to have? What are all its properties? And then the other side of it is, well, given I made a whole bunch of molecules already, like what's the right next set to make that we think would be even better than what we've made before? And those are really the two AI techs that Big Hat cares a lot about. And I think that's going to play out everywhere. Material science, small molecules, big molecules. I think you'll see huge advances in target selection with AI in the next few years. The argument there is simple. You know, we're very good at target selection this today from you know genetics, right? Like you know, I, at the Broad, it was like unbelievably sophisticated GWAS stuff happening everywhere. And it's not, it's usual to say like that's table stakes. Like you already have unbelievably sophisticated statistical machinery, it has nothing to do with machine learning. To, to find you know, genetic variants associated with disease. What's been difficult really is integration of data, right? Like we, it, it's hard to take the genetic variants and, and, and expression levels and cell state stuff and all these sort of heterogeneous data types that actually are, could tell you really more specifically about what you, how to think about drug design and, and, and really whether this is a good target and what exactly you want to do with the, with the target. And I think AI is, is big there. It's, it, it's really not clear how to do data integration without going into some sort of AI-like tech. The, the statistical model is unclear. So I think you'll see a huge boom for that because you'll be able to integrate data. You'll be able to leverage subtler signals to, to make you know, more informed decisions about the, the targets. I think the flip side of that, the other really complicated thing on the drug design side is not the targets, but the people. So, you know, which drugs are likely to work on which people is a huge problem. And so you see, I think you'll see a lot of more sophisticated patient selection approaches arising from machine learning things, right? Where you're saying, yeah, we can give this drug to everybody, but we think that this subset is going to be most enriched. Let's do that trial on the subset because it's faster, cheaper, better, we'll have better, better signal, all this stuff. And it, it, really, if you could... If you could imagine this world where you could perfectly choose which patients will respond to your drug, like this is means that you don't have to have giant trials. You can have small trials that have big effect sizes. You could figure that out. So the pressure there to figure that out is so huge. I think you'll see tons of AI applications. And again, I'm not, I'm not this is not a novel insight. Lots of people are out there doing that. And, and finally, there's the biomarker problem, right? I want to predict who's going to be most affected, like, you know, get the most benefit from this drug. I have two drugs, which, which of the two are most likely to work for you? You know, you didn't respond to this. What's the next best choice? Like all of that kind of stuff is going to be transformed by AI, right? You'll do imaging-based and biomarker-based assessments systematically the, to help you make decisions. And, and I, my prediction is that it'll reach the patients last in some sense, which is disappointing, but not unreasonable. Because I think what you'll see is that'll come out in patients that are in trials or patients that are really already in a medical situation as opposed to, you know, personalized medicine, right? What you're going to see is things like smarter cancer drug selection. And that's already going on now. And, and then maybe one day, you know, in 20 years from now, you'll, be, you know, you'll get, someone will tell you to take Motrin instead of aspirin <laughs> because of your genetic variant. But 
I think we're still away away from that world. But if you're in a clinical trial, I'm sure that, that that you'll be routed soon based on the AI tech. What lessons do you wish you'd learned earlier in your career? There are many, many things that I wish I had known. You know, I was reflecting on this when you when you sent me this question earlier. It's not obvious to me that you can learn these things just by listening. Like I can tell you, but I wish I had known this. And in some sense, intellectually, I probably did know it. But there's a world of difference between like reading in the book and knowing it in your bones, right? I think there's a couple of takeaways. One is technical skill isn't everything. Most things actually look more like a threshold than, than a continuous scale of return. It's like there are very few areas where I think maybe pure math is like this, where like raw skill translates to success all the way up into whatever quantile you happen to be in. If you're the top 50 in the world, like you could tell the difference between top 50 and top five. You could do that in sports, but I don't think you could do that in software engineering. There's a table stakes, like you're just productive enough. And, you know, granted, some people are super productive and others are a little bit less, but like my experience is like you, you could do it or you can't, right? It's very binary. Like, do you have the skills to do that? So it's really important not to think of the world as only optimizing along these one trajectories. It's like most things are like you want a, enough competence that you can function in that environment, and now you're now you're good. So I, I think that was a surprising thing in retrospect. And many people actually fall into the trap of thinking that technical skill is everything. In some sense, like academics is like it, it leads in this direction, right? Like you're the world expert on like one protein and all its mutants to it, and like. You, your technical skill is maximized in this tiny little area, but like no one wants to work with you because you know you you didn't spend any time learning how to manage your people, right? So that's that's a good way to think about it. So that was one observation that I've had that was surprising to me too. Two is similar to that is being right isn't always so important. There's a lot of time where like you should lose the battle to win the war, and that's not so easy to do because you have to really understand what the wars are so that you can lose the battles on purpose. It's like, if you have really interesting ideas that are undermining previous people's work in your field, like it's not, you know, how do you handle that? Like, it's very easy when you're new to these areas to be like, everyone else is wrong, I'm right, look at here, I will rub everyone's nose in it. That's not ideal. Like the outcomes that you get if you build consensus as opposed to battle it out, so that you can get that sense of like, I'm right and they're wrong, it, 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 I think are bigger. So it's better it's better to not be so focused on making sure everyone knows you are the right one. And that's again, an easy trap. Another thing that I thought was interesting is being smart is, is like a table stake. You've gotta have at least some amount of smarts to play at a certain level in academics or business. But success in those areas are like determined by other factors once you have enough. You know, and, and you can see this goal some people, right? Like, like the smartest person, the person with the best idea isn't necessarily in charge, isn't necessarily the leader in the field, isn't necessarily the most influential. And, and it's not always obvious when you're young, at least it wasn't obvious to me. Like, why, why is that happening? Like, what does that mean? Like, is it not a meritocracy? It's just, it's just a multi-objective. There's things that matter a lot for success in real endeavors that aren't just about being smart. Just being the smartest guy in the room doesn't mean that you should be in charge. You might actually have major deficits on other things that actually matter more for success. And 
that's that's a hard lesson to learn. And it's not always obvious where you learn that. Those are sort of early things. I think there's things that I've learned more recently that I think are, are useful. One is I would be very careful about becoming a trophy collector. And in some sense, winning a Marshall scholarship was one of the best things that ever happened to me because I remember thinking to myself at one point, I'm not sure I'm ever going to win anything as prestigious as this again. Like this is a this is it. I was like, oh, okay. I don't I don't want to collect anything else. Like I, I can focus on something else. Like I can focus on my ability to attract with people who want to work with me. And like they don't give prizes for that, right? That was really an important lesson that I had the benefit of learning early. Not through sophistication on my end. I just got lucky to see that up close. But I, you can see a lot of people over time chasing those trophies. They start to become obsessed with, you know, you want to be on the 30 under 30 list. You want to be on the 40 under 40. Like you want to make sure you're at the hottest, coolest startup with like the coolest logos. And like you can, you can really end up in a, a situation where you've obviously chased the trophies instead of caring about the race. And that's not good. Like you can really see that the, when you, when you get into that situation, people get very unhappy because They've pursued the awards at the expense of the field. They, they, they're in the field where they happen to get the awards, but they don't really care about advancing. And I think the, the flip side of that is just, you've got to know yourself, like what you want to do. It's easy to be scared of what you want to do. It doesn't really matter if it's what you want to do, it's what's going to make you happy. Like maybe you should just do it anyway, even if it doesn't matter, if it's not going to lead to a trophy at the end. Like, And you see, I have many people you res I respect, you say, wow, they... They've done amazing things, you know, like Rick Moranis is a good example of this. I, I like thinking about these examples, you know, he had kids and he decided that he wanted them to have a, a life where their father was around all the others. So he paused his acting career at the height of his fame and, and spent 20 years doing this. I think a lot of people would look at that and go, man, that's crazy. I'm like, that takes real commitment. That is, that is a person who knows what they want. And I, I have nothing but respect for that. And, and, and that's what you should really aim for, is the confidence to make decisions that are like that. And that's really hard, and you've got to be not scared. I mean, I'm sure he was terrified to make such a decision. And that happens all the time. I mean, I've sat back, and I'm like, I'm going to walk away from Google, at the head of this AI division, and like, this is unbelievable. I get paid tons of money to hang out and do whatever I want. And at the end of the day, like, I'm never going to be happy here. Like, I can't be here for another five years, because this isn't what I want to do. So even though it was painful in many, many ways and super scary, you, you just got to try it. And I think that's ultimately, you know, there's there's tons of famous quotes along this, but, you know, it's ultimately like what, what failure modes are you trying to avoid, right? Like the failure mode I think you've really got to ultimately avoid is that you don't do anything with your life, right? Like you had the opportunity and you didn't do it. And it's amazing how fast it goes. I think that's one of the most common regrets people have on their deathbed. Totally. And you can see how it's so easy. It goes super fast and you get more and more comfortable. And the choices to go do things that you think are interesting and important to do get harder and harder. But you've got to do it. I mean, otherwise you can end up in a terrible place. So my biggest advice for everyone is you just got to do it. It's scary, but you're going to do it. The Nike slogan. Yeah, there's a reason for this. Like this is athletes, it's scary. Like, you know, you're going to stand up and compete in a stadium of 30,000 people. Half of whom might not even like you. They just want you to do terrible. Like any any mistake you do, they're going to, you know, but you've got to walk out on the field and participate. It's really hard.
and I've often now been jealous of the athletes who've, who have grown up in environments that challenge them to do that. Because I have to do that now, you know, on the business side, you know, I pitch Big Hat where like, I got to raise money. Like if I don't raise the money, the company is going to go under. Like, this is very stressful. You know, you have to, you have to know how to approach that to know that it's going to be okay. Sometimes you lose it. Sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes you're humiliated. Like it just happens. There's a really beautiful quote from Michael Jordan about this. You know, it's like this thing where it's just like, it's just a litany of his failures. And he's like 70, 70 times in my life that I've been past the ball to take the game winning shot and missed. You're like 70 times. That's a lot. But it's, that's what's going to happen. If you want to play in positions where you might make the game winning shot, you've got to be prepared to lose. And I think my, it's funny, the most valuable thing that happened to me was to join Synaptics and have it totally blow up because it's not so bad. You know, it was terrible because I had to lay people off. Like, I mean, I'm not minimizing how, like, in the moment, this was terrible, but still it's okay. A couple of years later, you're like, okay, that was a, that was, that was a learning experience. Life goes on. Exactly. But like the bads aren't as bad as you think they're going to be. And in many ways, that was a key thing I could tell people. Look, I've, I've been at a failed startup, you know, big hat. We're trying our best, but don't be afraid of the failure mode to not go after the success. Cause it's not that bad. If you fail, you fail. It'll be okay. I totally agree. This has been really fun. No, it's really a total pleasure. And thank you so much for the invitation. You know, I, I've been increasingly impressed with what I've learned from these podcasts and being able to really contribute is, is so satisfying. So thank you for the invitation. And uh, it's really great to be here. Thanks, Mark. Really appreciate it.